This is Orson Welles on the Air, featuring the old-time radio performances of the legendary Orson Welles. On this episode of Orson Welles on the Air, we'll hear two more of the weekly commentaries Welles did for ABC Radio. Played a couple of these in the past. The first one is from July 28, 1946. It's titled, Affidavit of Isaac Woodard. Then we'll hear the August 4th, 1946 commentary titled The Peacemakers. Good morning, this is Orson Welles speaking. I'd like to read you an affidavit. I, Isaac Woodward Jr., being duly sworn to depose and state as follows, that I'm 27 years old and a veteran of the United States Army, having served for 15 months in the South Pacific and earned one battle star. I was honorably discharged on February 12, 1946, from Camp Gordon, Georgia, at 8.30 p.m. at the Greyhound Terminal, Atlanta, Georgia. While I was in uniform, I purchased a ticket to Winsboro, South Carolina, and took the bus headed there to pick up my wife to come to New York to see my father and mother. About one hour out of Atlanta, the bus driver stopped at a small drugstore. As he stopped, I asked him if he had time to wait for me until I had a chance to go to the restroom. He cursed and said no. When he cursed me, I cursed him back. When the bus got to Aiken, he got off and went and got the police. They didn't give me a chance to explain. The policeman struck me with a billy across my head and told me to shut up. After that, the policeman grabbed me by my left arm and twisted it behind my back. I figured he was trying to make me resist. I did not resist against him. He asked me... Was I discharged? And I told him yes. When I said yes, that is when he started beating me with a billy, hitting me across the top of the head. After that, I grabbed his billy and wrung it out of his hand. Another policeman came up and threw his gun on me and told me to drop the billy, and he dropped me, so I dropped the billy. After I dropped the billy, the second policeman held his gun on me while the other one was beating me. He knocked me unconscious. After I commenced to come to myself, he yelled, get up. I started to get up. He started punching me in my eyes with the end of the billy. When I finally got up, he pushed me inside the jailhouse and locked me up. I woke up next morning and could not see. A policeman said, let's go up here and see what the judge says. I told him that I could not see how to come out. I was blind. He said, feel your way out. He said, I'd be all right after I washed my face. He led me to the judge. And after I told the judge what happened, he said, we don't have that kind of stuff down here. Then the policeman said... He wrung my billy out of my hand. I told him if he didn't drop it, I'd drop him. That's how I knew it was the same policeman as had beat my eyes out. After that, the judge spoke and said, I fine you $50 for 30 days in the road. And I said, I'd pay the $50, but I did not have the $50 at the time. So the policeman said, you have some money there in your wallet. He took my wallet and took out all I had. That was a total of $40 and took $4 from my watch pocket. I had a check for $694.73, which was my mustering out pay and soldier's deposit. Said to me... Can you see how to sign this check? You have a government check. I told him, no, sir. So he gave it back to me after that. Took me back and locked me up in the jail. The policeman did, and I stayed in there for a while. And after a few minutes, he came and asked me if I wanted a drink of whiskey. I, if I took a drink of whiskey, he said I'd feel better. I told him, no, sir. Didn't care for any. About 5.30 that evening, they took me to the Veterans Hospital in Columbia, South Carolina. One of the contact men came around one day and said to me they were going to take out a pension for me. I believe that the doctor who cared for me was named Dr. Clarence. I told him what had happened to me. He made no comment, but told me I should join a blind school. Sworn to me, this 23rd day of April, 1946. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I had that affidavit in my pocket a few hours before dawn. When I left off worrying about this broadcast long enough for coffee at an all-night restaurant, I found myself joined at the table by a stranger. A nice, soft-spoken, well-meaning, well-mannered stranger he was. He told me a joke. He thinks it's a joke. I'm going to repeat it, but not for your amusement. I earnestly hope that nobody listening will laugh. 
This is the joke. It seems there was a white man who came on business to a southern town that could be Aiken, South Carolina, and found he couldn't get a bed in any of the good hotels. He went to the bad hotels and finally the flop houses, but there was no room for him in any of the inns reserved for white hope folks in that southern city. So at last, in desperation, he applied at a Negro hotel where he was accepted with the proviso that he would consent to share a double room with another guest. With rueful gratitude, this white man paid his bill, left a call for early in the morning. He rested well, quite undisturbed by the proximity of the sleeping colored man beside him and was awakened at the hour of his request. After breakfast, he left the railway station where he boarded his appointed train, but the conductor would not let him into any of the regular coaches. The man was told quite rudely to go where he belonged, the Jim Crow car. The hero of this funny story allowed he hadn't washed in the morning that the dust of travel must be responsible for the conductor's grievous social miscalculation. He went to the washroom. He started to clean his hands. They were black, an even hue of black. Then he looked into the mirror. His face was the same color. He not only looked darker than white, he was quite visibly a Negro. A great oath preceded the final line, which is presumed to be the funny part of this little anecdote. I know what's happened to the next words of the man. It's very simple. They woke up the wrong man. I left the teller of this tale in the coffee shop, but I found I couldn't leave the tale itself. Like the affidavit I read to you at the start of the broadcast, it seems to become a permanent part of my mental luggage. I sketched in my imagination a sequel to the stranger's funny joke. I saw the man of business who'd gone to bed, a white man getting into an argument with the conductor. I saw a policeman boarding the train at the next station and taking the man of business out on the platform and beating the eyes out of his head because the man thought he should be treated with the same respect he had received the day before when he was white. I saw men at the police station trying to make him take a drink so that the medical authorities could testify that he was drunk. I saw the man of business bleeding in his cell, reaching out with sightless hands through unseen bars, gesturing for help that would not, could not ever come. And I heard his explanation echoing down the stone hallways of the jail. I know what's happened. It's very simple. They woke up the wrong man. Now, it seems the officer of the law who blinded the young Negro boy, the affidavit, has not been named. The boy saw him while he could still see, but of course he had no way of knowing what particular policeman it was who brought the justice of Dasha and Osvikin to Aiken, South Carolina. He was just another white man with a stick who wanted to teach a Negro boy a lesson to show a Negro boy where he belonged in the darkness. Till we know more about him, for just now we'll call the policeman Officer X. He might be listening to this. I hope so. Officer X, I'm talking to you. Officer X, they woke up the wrong man. That's somebody else. That man sleeping there is you. The you that God brought into the world, all innocent of hate. A paid-up resident member of the Brotherhood of Man. Yes, unbelievably enough, that's you, Officer X. You, still asleep. That you could have been anything. It could have gone to the White House when it grew up. It could have gone to heaven when it died. But they woke up the wrong man. They finally came for him in the blank gray of dawn. As in the death house, they come for the condemned, but without prayers. They came with instructions. The accumulated ignorance of the feudal South. And with this peculiar briefing, they called Cain for another day of the devil's work. While Abel slept. Wash your hands, Officer X. Wash them well. Scrub and scour. You won't blot out the blood of a blinded war veteran. Nor yet the color of your skin, your own skin. You'll never, never, never change it. 
Wash your hands, Officer X. Wash a lifetime you'll never wash away that leprous lack of pigment, the guilty pallor of the white man. We invite you to luxuriate in secrecy. It will be brief. Go on. Suckle your anonymous moment while it lasts. You're going to be uncovered. We will blast out your name. We'll give the world your given name, Officer X. Yes, and your so-called Christian name. It's going to rise out of the filthy deep like the dead thing it is. We're going to make it public with the public scandal you dictated but failed to sign. We pause now for a word from the philosophers. A short reminder regarding the matter of payment and cost. Nothing is paid back. That does not happen, not on earth. A favor cannot be paid back, neither can a wrong. We say a criminal pays for his crime when we lock him up, but a murderer pays for his murder when the state murders him. But really, the state is hiding an unsightly object. Society is merely sweeping its dirt under the carpet. We may sometimes manage to cure the thing called crime... But the man called a criminal is never punished. He can be inconvenienced or tormented or done away with, but he cannot pay for what he has done. If the ledger is ever balanced, it is not by him, but by some other man having nothing to do with him. It is balanced by deeds of virtue, by unrelated good works. The evildoer's agony doesn't show on the books. Only that fiction known to us as money can be paid back. The true debt, the debt of a friend to a friend or a foe to a foe, outlives the principles involved. So much for payment. Price. That's something else. There's a price for everything. There's nothing that does not have its cost. Joy and inspiration and mere pleasure have a market value precisely computed in terms of their opposites. The cost of youth is age. The cost of age is debt. You want love? The cost of love is independence. You want to be independent, do you? Then pay the price and know what it is to be alone. Your mother paid for you with pain. Nothing, nothing in this living world is free. The free air costs you the life-consuming effort of breath. Freedom itself is priced at the rate of the citizenship it earns and holds. What does it cost to be a Negro? In Aiken, South Carolina, it costs a man his eyes. What does it cost to wear over your skeleton the pinkish tint officially described as white? In Aiken, South Carolina, it costs a man his soul. Officer X may languish in jail. It's unlikely, but it's possible that he'll serve as long a term as a Negro would serve in Aiken, South Carolina, for stealing bread. But Officer X will never pay for the two eyes he beat out of the soldier's head. How can you essay the gift of sight? What are they quoting today for one eye? An eye for an eye? A literal reading of this mosaic law spells out again only the blank waste of vengeance. We've told Officer X that he will be dragged out of hiding. We've promised him a most unflattering glare of publicity. We're going to keep that promise. We will build our own police lineup to line up this reticent policeman with the killers, the lunatics, the beastmen, all the people of society's zoo where he belongs. If he's listening to this, let him listen well. Officer X, after I have found you out, I'll never lose you. If they try you, I'm going to watch the trial. If they jail you, I'm going to wait for your first day of freedom. You won't be free of me. I want to see who's waiting for you at the prison gates. I want to know who will acknowledge that they know you. I'm interested in your future. I will take careful note of all your destinations. Assume another name and I will be careful that the name you would forget is not forgotten. I will find means to remove from you all refuge, Officer X. You can't get rid of me. We have an appointment, you and I, and only death can cancel it. 
Who am I? A masked avenger from the comic books? No, sir. Merely an inquisitive citizen of America. I admit that nothing on this inhabited earth is capable of your chastisement. I'm simply but quite actively curious to know what will become of you. Your fate cannot affect a boy in the country hospital for the blind, but your welfare is a measure of the welfare of my country. I cannot call it your country. How long will you get along in these United States? Which of the states will still consent to get along with you? Where stands the sun of common fellowship? When will it rise over your dark country? When will it be noon in Georgia? I must know where you go, Officer X, because I must know where the rest of us are going with our American experiment. Into bankruptcy or into that serene tomorrow, that plenteous garden the blind soldier hoped for when he had his eyes and with eyes opened, went to war. We want a word to lighten his darkness. You're sorry for him? He rejects your pity. You're ashamed? He doesn't care. We want to tell him soon that all America is ashamed of you. If there's room for pity, you can have it, for you're far more blind than he. He had eyes to see and saw with them, made out, if nothing else, at least a part of the shape of human dignity. And this is not a little thing, but you had eyes to see and you have never seen. He has the memory of light, but you were born in the pit. He cannot grow new eyes to open the world again for his poor bruised head. Never. No. The only word we can share the martyr with to carry him from the county hospital to the county grave is word concerning your eyes, Officer X. Your eyes, remember, were not gouged away. Only the lids are closed. You might raise the lids. You might just try the wild adventure of looking. You might see something. It might be a simple truth. One of those truths held to be self-evident by our founding fathers and by most of us. If we should ever find you bravely blinking at the sun, we'll know then that the world is young after all. That chaos is behind us and not ahead. Then there will be shouting of trumpets to rouse the dead at Gettysburg. A thunder of cannon will declare the tidings of peace, and all the bells of liberty will laugh out loud in the streets to celebrate goodwill towards all men. The new blind can hear it be very good if they could hear the news that the old blind can finally see. Then, Officer X, you'll find that you can wash off what should be washed, and it will be said of you, yes, even you, that they awakened the right man. Now it's time to say goodbye. Please let me come to call again. Next week, same time. Until then, I remain as always obediently yours. Ladies and gentlemen, the American Broadcasting Company invites you to be with us again next Sunday afternoon at 1.15 o'clock over most of these very same stations when we shall again hear from Mr. Orson Welles. This is ABC, the American Broadcasting Company. Clement Attlee, the Prime Minister of Britain, remembered a cartoon he'd seen 25 years before in the London Daily Herald. It showed the big four of 1919, Wilson and Lloyd George, Clemenceau and Orlando, walking out of the peace conference of 1919, having written the Treaty of Versailles. And Clemenceau had stopped the others, curious, the old lion was saying. Curious. I seem to hear a child crying. The cartoon, Mr. Atley remembered, showed a child, a weeping child, labeled in a bitterly wonderful moment of prophecy, class of 1940. We're very glad that the Prime Minister of Britain had not forgotten the cartoon. We hope he never does. We suggest that a few copies be struck off for distribution among the peacemakers of 1946. Mr. Molotov and Mr. Burns would be well advised to decorate their shaving mirrors with that picture of the weeping child. We cannot think of a better way for them to start their day. It's 
Stalin's Yalta promise to democratize Eastern Europe was broken in Bucharest the week after it was made. The Soviet empire is already reaching from Finland to the borders of Greece, and the grand alliance of the so-called democracies of the West has long since ceased to be a mere diplomatic threat. As the politicos haggle away another summer on such issues as the two-thirds voting procedure, that grand alliance looms over the arguments as a blunt political fact. The United States and the Soviet Union, it turns out, are going to stand together on the broad question of the veto. Borders will be disputed, but the main border is past dispute. The borderline of a divided world shows black enough for the least observant of the observers to spell it out of the headlines. Blocks versus majorities, the big powers versus the small. These are matters for a thousand editorials today, but most folks who follow the news, even in the most casual sandwich of comic strips, know what time of day it is. Perhaps even the diplomats have taken note that this, in very truth, is the 11th hour. Take me to the Luxembourg Palace, said the newspaper man, according to his own dispatch. To the palace, of course, said the cab driver, where you're all busy preparing for the next war. Collective security, the one world of Roosevelt and Wilkie and Litvinov, are the ashes of dreams. Empires expand and shrink. Borders are pushed back and forth over the hapless heads of the peoples of Europe. The Russian half of our poor little globe is an armed camp. America has defaulted as champion of the freedoms. In foreign policy, Roosevelt's party is playing the Republican game and Britain's Labour Party is dancing the old dance of death while the old Tory idea, the Tory ignorance and Tory cowardice, call the tune. Curious. I seem to hear a child crying. No, I'm afraid the Palace of Luxembourg is more likely to be remembered in ages hence as the place where Tom Paine wrote The Age of Reason. Along the Potomac, the dawn rose quiet and cool. Around the floor of the Senate, tired colored men were bent over the worn carpet, picking up the refuse left behind by the 79th Congress of the United States. Among the Senate porters, more than one must have muttered good riddance. And as he swept thoughtfully beneath the seats of Senator Bilbo and Senator Eastland, the gentleman from Mississippi, he must have dreamt a happy little dream of someday putting that broom of his to more effective service in the hygiene of the United States Senate. This Sunday in Washington is as dead a Sunday as was ever known in Zion, Illinois. Even the White House is empty. Mr. Harry Truman is down in Missouri in the hopes of stifling a human roadblock named Roger Slaughter, a congressman from Kansas City. Some people think Mr. Truman ought to stay out of local politics. Others think he never should have left local politics. State Department's like a tomb. Mr. Jimmy Burns is in Paris. Mr. Dean Atchison sits in his Maryland farm today, licking a few wounds. The undersecretary took a bad beating during the last few hours of the 79th Congress. Well, maybe he didn't take them personally. You and I and the family next door, we're all a little black and blue. For one thing, it was a little matter of a world court. Oregon Senator Morse moved that the Senate vote a treaty accepting jurisdiction of the new world court in all international cases. In other words, the treaty said, we will not only join the court, but will abide by its decisions. We will not hold out a veto power on whether or not we would play ball if we thought the decisions would go against us. This veto power is what Burns is opposing in Paris now, and Baruch is fighting in New York. Of all the opponents of the veto power, the most enthusiastic is that triumvirate of statesmen Tom Connolly, Arthur Vandenberg, and John Foster Dulles. Mr. Dulles, in his wisdom, has decided that he doesn't like the possible compulsory decisions of the World Court. Mr. Dulles, it seems, wants the United States to have a veto power in the court. This, mind you, is the identical Mr. Dulles who writes those nice long articles in Life magazine calling for war on Russia 
because the Bolsheviks, those unreasoning savages of the East, refuse in their oriental ignorance to give up the veto power. This is the same Mr. Dulles who drafts some reservations to the World Court Bill. Reservations. Do you know what that word means, reservations? Does it ring a bell somewhere in the back of your mind? Does it strike an unpleasantly familiar chord in your memory of other peace conferences? Reservations? That's precisely the word used by the Honorable Mr. Henry Cabot Lodge when he fought the League of Nations in 1920. Reservations. He killed the League with reservations. The reservations of Mr. Dulles were rendered up in legislative form to his favorite senator, Mr. Vandenberg. These reservations were introduced in turn by Mr. Vandenberg to the Senate. Against these reservations, Mr. Morse battled with stubborn persistence and a stout heart, but to no avail. Up stands the gentleman from Texas, Mr. Connolly, and backs up a queer, gray, formless object known as bipartisan foreign policy. And the result, we have approved the World Court Treaty with reservations. What does that mean, Daddy? It means we have the veto power. Isn't that nice, Daddy? Does that mean the other countries have the veto power? Certainly not. The veto power is like the atom bomb. It's very dangerous. If anybody else has it. Memo for the U.S. Mint. Put a new motto on the penny. In us, we trust. Curious. I seem to hear a child cry. What do you say to sending a thousand American students to every major country of Europe and sending a thousand of their students here? All those thousands and thousands of young people multiplied by the friends they're bound to make ought to make it a little more imperative for the governments of the world to get along together in a sensible climate of good fellowship. I don't mean the students could do it all by themselves, but they could do their bit. Well, there was a bill providing for such a worldwide exchange. Tom Connolly allowed that the $10 million it called for was just another case of foolish spending, but the friends of the bill finally got the elder statesmen to see it their way, and it would have been put to a or nay if Lister Hill of Alabama hadn't asked the gentleman from Texas if he would yield well, Sir Tom yielded, and Lister Hill took off on an hour's oration concerning the defenses of Pearl Harbor. This gave Tom time to talk to some other thinkers and to remember his train reservations home. Tom didn't want to lose those reservations. There goes that word again, reservations. By the time the senator from Alabama finished his address... That fine exchange project was just another matter for the dustbin of the 79th Congress of the United States of America. And yet, you know, out of all this stupid blundering and floundering, this awful mess, more than a few good bills have been born. Congress is the right confusing thing to watch. Fair estimate of any Congress is hard to come by. The 79th Congress, just for example, the same Congress that scuttled full employment, that failed to pass an anti-lynch bill or to destroy the poll tax, is the Congress that surprised even itself and passed Bretton Woods and the United Nations Charter. Yes, the same Congress that went on that strike-breaking binge of recent and unhappy memory. The same Congress that let the OPA wither and die. Increased appropriations for the sick and needy and passed a much better than decent bill for the control of atomic energy. Almost its last accomplishment belongs on the credit side of the ledger. The LaFollette Monroney bill, for which we've beaten a couple of drums in this program, is now law. It reorganizes Congress itself and brings the machinery of lawmaking to a point of efficiency that's almost up to date. Because of this bill, the 80th Congress will find itself in many respects a new kind of organization. And the congressmen of the 80th Congress <coughs> themselves are going to be a little better paid. That ought to mean that fewer of our representatives will suffer in the future from Andy May's kind of heart trouble. All in all, we've had a lot of disappointments this year from Washington, but the good word is that our brand of democracy 
is still in working order and open for business. Last week, I read you an affidavit from a Negro soldier named Isaac Woodward. Now, you remember that he was taken off a bus in South Carolina by a policeman and beaten until he was blinded in both eyes. I have before me a letter from Mr. H. Odell Weeks, who, it seems, is the mayor of the city of Aiken in the state of South Carolina, where, according to the soldier's affidavit, he was blinded. The mayor encloses affidavits of his own, sworn to by the city recorder, by the city chief of police, and by a couple of patrol officers. Now, these gentlemen deny all knowledge of the incident. It is indeed unfortunate, writes Mr. Weeks. And these are his exact words. Quote, that you did not fully verify this story before you broadcasted it. Unquote. The mayor goes on to say that since my broadcast went out to the nation, and since according to the affidavits, the locale of the story was wholly untrue, he, the mayor, urges that I have the courage and forthrightness to retract the wrong I have done his city, giving to my own retraction the same emphasis I placed upon the original broadcast. Well, Mr. Weeks, I hardly know how to make affidavits of your city recorder and city policeman as emphatic as... Mr. Woodward's in the hospital for the blind. If it turns out to be true that the city of Aiken is blameless of this hideous scandal, it is my duty to make that innocence as public as possible. And I hope to be able to. But I must warn you that denials are never dramatic, and if I'm to say something exciting about Aiken, it will have to be something better than that a Negro boy was never blinded in its streets. I look forward to giving the subject of Aiken all the emphasis it deserves, but I'm bound to fail without some affirmative material. There are thousands of cities where Negro soldiers have not been blinded. I hope it will be my privilege to announce that your city is one of these. But since the broadcast is going to go out, as you put it, to the nation, let's spice up the retraction with a little good news. I won't ask you what the city of Aiken has done for Negro soldiers or for Negroes or for the blind. I'll only ask you if you're willing to join with me in a manhunt. A man dressed as a policeman blinded a discharged veteran. The blinded boy swears that his tormentor told him he came from the Aiken police. It is surely a more urgent matter for you to apprehend this imposter before he commits further outrages in your city's name than it is to exact from a commentator the cold comfort of apology. You'll get the apology when the facts are clear. Until then, you must understand why it must be deferred. After all, Mr. Weeks, I have not only the affidavits of your policeman, I have also the affidavit of the blinded soldier. Working on the meager clue that there is also an Aiken County, I've sent investigators there and to your city. Who should bring out the truth? Unless it is too skillfully hidden. The soldier might easily have made a mistake, but there's a man in a policeman's uniform who made a worse mistake. And all the retractions in the world won't cleanse the name of Aiken till we find that man. I assure you, Mr. Weeks, I do not doubt the word of your police chief, your patrol officers, your city recorder, but neither do I doubt the word of the blinded Negro boy. His suffering gives his oath a special validity, and I would take it against the Supreme Court and the President of the United States. Let us say he misunderstood what was said to him, or let us say he was lied to. 
But just saying that isn't enough. Your city's honor is certainly more important than my pride, but honor and pride are piddling trifles beside a pair of eyes. If it is your point that the boy was lied to, it is my point that we must all of us refuse to rest till we've unmasked the liar. If you want me to say that this awful thing did not happen in your city, then there's an American soldier who believes that it did happen in your city. And I cannot forget that. It is to him, Mr. Weeks, that you should address your first and most indignant letters. They will, of course, need to be transcribed in Braille. And now I see my time is just about up. That's all I have to say to you for the moment, Mr. Mayor of Aiken. And you, ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for coming to... This part of your dial at this part of a Sunday. Please let me join you next week at the same time and let me hear from you. Your letters are much appreciated. We like reading them on this program. Till next week then, same time, same station. I remain as always obedient to yours. This is ABC, the American Broadcasting Company. That's Orson Welles on the air for this time. I'll be back soon with more. In the meantime, be sure to check out RelicRadio.com, more old-time radio and links to our forum, Shoutcast Stream, and everything else, Relic Radio. Thanks for joining me today. I'll be back soon with another episode of Orson Welles on the air.